Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Washington's Polarizing Divide, Are Potatoes a Vegetable? by Christina Peterson. Then Alinka Dizik wrote an article, The Embarrassment of Having to Explain Your Monster Ring. Then Katie Dayton's, Podcasters Advertise Like Hollywood. Then an article titled, Plush Toy CEOs Play Hardball in Cuddle Ability Competition by Chavi Lieber. And then, In Praise of Girls' Night by Katie Rofi. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Washington's Polarizing Divide, Are Potatoes a Vegetable? Botanists count potatoes as a vegetable, but should Americans? The United States Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee has sparked the question, setting the table for a round of spud sparing among scientists, potato growers, potato lovers, and parents. Kids, especially, want credit for eating veggies in the form of fries. White potatoes, which come in various colors, are classified as starchy vegetables. But the committee could uproot potatoes from the vegetable bin and toss them in with a broader category of rice, other grains, and carbohydrates as the Departments of Agriculture and Health and Human Services weigh updates to national diet guidelines for 2025. The scientific debate isn't easy to follow, but it sounds like a half-baked idea to Cam Quarles, chief executive of the National Potato Council, a potato industry group. The dietary guidelines shape nutrition advice to Americans as what foods are served in school cafeterias. Potatoes, according to Quarles, should be respected as a gateway vegetable. Kids are far more likely to eat dishes with other vegetables if potatoes are involved, he said. Not all parents swallow that a trail of tubers leads to leafy greens. Some complained about a Peppa Pig animated cartoon that featured a potato preaching the nutritional value of vegetables. By the power of vegetables, I am here, Super Potato said, soaring through the sky, singing, Fruits and vegetables keep us alive. Always remember to eat your five. The United Kingdom's National Health Service, for one, does not count spuds towards the UK's recommended five portions of fruits and vegetables a day. It's a giant spud signing it. You're like, really? A potato's one of your five a day, said Dan Grief, the owner of Deliciously Guilt-Free, a sugar-free bakery in Cambridge, UK. He spent years persuading his two children to eat vegetables. Then, he said, a drawing of a potato tells you it's fine and you don't listen to your dad. Kayla Saliba, a registered nurse in Nashville, Tennessee, was also steamed after watching the episode with her children. 
I just remember watching it thinking they shouldn't be grouping potatoes in with all those other vegetables, she said. Growing up, Saliba said her mother always made sure their dinners included a protein, a vegetable, and a starch. I can tell you that corn did not count as a vegetable and potatoes did not count as a vegetable, she said. Under the United States dietary guidelines, corn on the cob is a starchy vegetable, while cornmeal is a grain. The other side of you say potato, I say vegetable debate surfaced in the best-selling novel Happy Place by Emily Henry. A daughter urges her parents to consider eating like even a single vegetable per week. When her mother counters potatoes are a vegetable, her three children object in unison. For a few spud stalwarts, potatoes aren't just a vegetable, they are a lifestyle. Chris Voigt, the executive director of the Washington State Potato Commission, ate nothing but potatoes and a little ketchup for 60 days back in 2010. He launched his all-potato diet in protest of the Federal Nutrition Program for Low-Income Women and Children's Rule that allowed for the purchase of all fruits and vegetables except the white potato. Voigt ate 20 potatoes a day to meet his goal of consuming 2,200 calories. I ate every possible way you could cook them. Bake, fry, mash, roast, even juice them, he said. Wouldn't recommend potato juice. Over two months, Voigt said he lost 21 pounds, stopped snoring, according to his wife, and lowered his cholesterol. His feat inspired Tim Steele to try an all-potato diet and later to write The Potato Hack, a book outlining his advice for all spud meals for stints of three to five days. If you're not hungry enough to eat another potato, then you're probably not really hungry, said Steele. The operations and maintenance manager for facilities at a hospital in Fairbanks, Alaska. Steele said the diet re-energized his palate. When you're done with it, the first food you eat is just an amazing experience, said Steele, whose first bite was dark chocolate. The United States guidelines are intended to give nutritional advice and break food into five groups, vegetables, grains, fruits, dairies, and protein. Yet those five groups may not reflect exactly how all Americans eat. The Scientific Advisory Committee has said it is eyeing the grains group and whether people in some cultures or with health preferences, such as a gluten-free diet, have different eating patterns. The panel wants to make sure everyone is getting enough nutrients, whether eating more potatoes, bread, or beans. Grains, for their part, are trying to wave off the potential potato invasion. The Grain Chain, a grains industry coalition, told the advisory committee that it was concerned that if Americans replace some grains with starchy vegetables based on the new guidelines, it could forever and further exacerbate nutritional shortfalls. Nutrition researchers say the potato contains helpful nutrients, including potassium and vitamin C, but its health benefits are diminished when it is fried. Nearly half of all United States States potatoes eaten as food go into frozen products, mostly French fries, the USDA found. Now, the embarrassment of having to explain your monster ring. 
Lab-grown diamonds make it cheaper to get engaged, but there are rocky moments. Wedding planner Sterling Boulay has some advice for brides-to-be regarding lab-grown diamonds, which cost a fraction of the natural ones. If you're trying to get your man to propose, they'll propose faster if you offer this as an option, says Boulay of Raleigh, North Carolina. Recently, she adds, a friend's fiancé thanked me the next three times I saw him for telling him about the cheaper lab-made option. Man-made diamonds are catching on despite some lingering stigma. This year was the first time that sales of lab-made and naturally mined loose diamonds, primarily used as center stones and engagement rings, were split evenly, according to data from Tenoris, a jewelry and diamond trends analytics company. The rise of lab-made stones, however, is bringing up quirks along the perks. Now that blingier engagement rings above two or three carats are more affordable, more people are dealing with the peculiarities of wearing rather large rocks. Esther Hare, a 5-foot, 11-inch former triathlete, sought out a 4.5-carat lab-made oval-shaped diamond to fit her larger hands as a part of her vow renewal in Hawaii. It was a far cry from the half-carat ring her husband proposed with more than 25 years ago and the 1.5-carat upgrade they purchased 10 years ago. Hare, 50, who lives in San Jose, California and works in high-tech, shows a $40,000 lab-made diamond because it's nuts to have to spend $100,000 on a natural stone. Had to be big. That was my vision, she says. But the size of the ring has made it less practical at times. She doesn't wear it for athletic training and swaps in her wedding band instead. And she is careful to leave it at home when traveling. A lot of times I won't take it on vacation because it's just a monster, she says. The average retail price for a one-carat lab made loose diamond decreased to $1,426 this year from $3,039 in 2020, according to the Tenoris data. Similar-sized loose natural diamonds cost $5,246 this year, compared with $4,943 in 2020. Lab-made diamonds have essentially the same chemical makeup as natural ones and look the same unless viewed through sophisticated equipment that gauges the characteristics of emitted light. At Ratani, an online jewelry retailer, lab-made diamond sales make up about 70% of the diamonds sold, up from roughly 30% two years ago, said Juliet Gomez, head of customer service at the company based in White Plains, New York. Ratani sometimes records videos of the lab diamonds pinging when exposed to a diamond tester, a tool that judges authenticity to show customers that the man-made rocks behave the same as natural ones. We definitely have some deep conversations with them, Gomes says. Not all gem dealers are rolling with these stones. Philadelphia jeweler Steven Singer only stocks the natural stuff in his store and is planning a February campaign to give about 1,000 one-carat lab-made diamonds away free to prove they are worthless. 
Anyone can sign up online and get one in the mail. Even shipping is free. I'm not selling Frankensteins that were built in a lab, Singer said. Some brides are turned off by the larger bling now allowed by the lower prices. When her now husband proposed with a two-carat lab-grown engagement ring, Tiffany Bouchette, 40, was excited about the prospect of marriage, but not about the size of the diamond, which she says struck her as costume jewelry-ish. I said yes in the moment, of course, I didn't want it to be weird, said the physician assistant from Westchester, Pennsylvania. But within weeks, she says, she fessed up, telling her fiancé, I think I hate this ring. The couple returned it and then bought a one-carat natural diamond for more than double the price. When Boulay, the wedding planner in Raleigh, got engaged herself, she was over the moon when her fiancé proposed with a 2.3-carat lab-made diamond ring. It's very shiny. We were almost worried it was too shiny and was going to look fake, she says. It doesn't, which presents another issue, looking like someone who really shelled out for jewelry. Boulay will occasionally volunteer that her diamond ring came from a lab. I don't want people to think I'm putting on airs or trying to be flashier than I am, she says. For Daniel Teo, a 36-year-old software engineer outside of Detroit, buying a cheaper lab-made diamond for his fiancée meant extra room in his $30,000 ring budget. Instead of a bigger ring, he got her something they could both enjoy. During a walk while on an annual ski trip to South Lake Tahoe, Tio popped the question and handed his now-wife a handmade wooden box that included a 2.5-carat lab-made diamond ring and a car key. She put on the ring, celebrated with both of her sisters and a friend, who was the unofficial photographer of the happy event, and then they drove back to the house. There, she saw a 1965 Mustang GT Coupe in Wimbledon white with red stripes and a bow on top. Looking back, Tio says, it was still the diamond that made that first big impression. It wasn't until like 15 minutes later she was like, so what's with this key, he adds. And now podcasters advertise like Hollywood. In a shopping mall in Los Angeles, Century City, a 1,200 square foot room was painted green, covered in Christmas decorations, and filled with an espresso bar, a cotton candy stand, and a step-and-repeat area for photo shoots. An actor dressed in a furry green suit makes an appearance on weekends. The Grinch's Holiday Green Room, as it is called, is one of L.A.'s latest pop-up experiences, the kind usually deployed to build excitement around big-budget TV shows and movies. But this one is promoting a podcast, an entertainment format that until recently got by almost entirely with low-key marketing support. For its Tis the Grinch Holiday podcast, Amazon podcast studio Wondery rolled out in an expansive campaign that is more uncommon with the movie marketing playbook than the far cheaper one employed by many podcast makers for the past decade and a half bartering host read ads and hoping for a good placement on the home page of podcast apps. Other podcast companies are taking a similar approach as competition for listeners mounts and investors start to get serious about profitability. 
They are turning the audible into the visual to advertise shows across billboards, streaming platforms, and the internet, and hiring marketing executives from studios and streamers to lead the change. Our starting point was always Hollywood-style content, said Nicole Blake, Wondery's head of franchise development. And now we're bringing that Hollywood approach to see how we go to market. Podcast listenership has been on an essentially upward trajectory since the medium first emerged in the mid-2000s. The industry is primarily funded by two groups, advertisers sold on the premise that they can reach young, educated consumers, and technology companies looking to turn listeners into paying subscribers with a relatively cheap form of media. Spotify, which recently said it would lay off 17% of its workforce, poured more than $1 billion into the category. Successful podcast companies in the 210s seldom considered advertising their shows in the traditional sense, podcast executives said. With demand on the rise, but the pool of shows still relatively small, most studios could rely on word-of-mouth PR and bartering, whereby one podcast would advertise another in exchange for the same favor. We used to be able to roll out a podcast, mention it on a few other shows, and boom, we'd have like 200,000 downloads a week. Easy, said Kristen Hume, Senior Director of Brand and Marketing at NPR. Then a wave of new shows came. More than one million new podcast series were released in 2020, up from over 23,000 in 2010, according to podcast search engine Listen Notes. The visuals that appear with a podcast and apps and in marketing now require more investment, executives say. So more cash is being spent on designing striking artwork to stand out on the likes of Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and on filming studio talent for YouTube and TikTok. Offline, billboards are an appealing visual medium for podcast marketers who rarely have big enough budgets to buy TV commercials. Podcasters including Slate, Pushkin Industries, and iHeartMedia have placed ads in busy areas like Times Square and alongside roads across the country to spark interest for shows including Slow Burn, The Happiness Lab, and Atlanta Monster. NPR, which went through layoffs and had its marketing budget cut this year, now advertises its products on YouTube, Spotify, and connected TV platforms, including Hulu. Since 2021, it has run at least $1 million campaign a year, the latest of which promoted the work of its black podcast hosts. Blake, the Wondery executive behind the Grinch campaign, joined the company in 2021 from Warner Brothers, where she led the global franchise development of the Harry Potter brand. The company, which declined to say how much it is spending on the campaign, plans to apply the tried and tested Hollywood concept of intellectual property to more podcasts, giving priority to ideas that might expand into books, TV series, live events, and other podcasts, Blake said. This is in contrast to Airs LA, which is volunteer podcasts. That was not in the article, just adding it. And now Plush Toy CEO play hardball in cuddleability competition. This holiday season, business is soft, 
CEO David Sosha couldn't be happier. The chief executive of Beverly Hills Teddy Bear finds comfort in plush toys. Cute, squishable, and this year one of America's hottest gifts. Ahead of a holiday season dampened by a weak forecast, toy makers and retailers are trying to stay flush with plush. Autumn Ruhi, the owner of the Mildred and Dildred's Toy Store in Tucson, Arizona, said her stockroom is stuffed with fuzzy pandas, cuddly possums, squishy cats, and a squeezable alien named Ross. We've never had a category overshadow all the rest like this before, Rui said. Toy sales are down 8% this year compared with 2022, but plush toys are enjoying a soft landing, up 4% for the year, according to market research firm Circana. Plush toy sales grew to $1.7 billion in October from $846 million in October 2020. To stand out from the crowd, plush toy makers seek to best their rivals in softness and cuddleability. We think about plush the way you think about thread counts in sheets, said Sosha of Beverly Hills Teddy Bears, which owns other plush toy companies, including World's Softest Plush. The average plush might have 300 to 400 threads per inch, but ours is a thousand plus per inch. It's buttery, silky, cloud soft that is cool to the touch. He called the polyester used by World Softest the Taj Mahal of materials, costing about $10 a yard compared with plush materials that cost around $2 a yard. The pricey stuff, he said, can stimulate every nerve in your hand. MGA Entertainment, the empire behind Bratz and LOL dolls, recently released Fluffy Stuffies, a plush toy with a top layer of shaggy fur and a fleece-like material underneath. The top is tactile, so you want to keep touching it, says Isaac Larian, MGA chief executive, and underneath it is very soft and squishy. Ty, the maker of Beanie Babies, said its plush toys are softer than ever. In May, the company switched Beanie Babies to the same fabric used by the top fashion brands in the world, said chief executive and co-founder Ty Warner. Soft sells, Warner said. The more cuddly, the better. The sense of touch and feel makes kids feel safe and secure. Gund, the plush toy company owned by Spin Master, markets its toys as huggable. Adam Hyman, a Spin Master vice president, said the trick is crafting proper plush interiors. If you overstuff a plush, it feels different, he said. If you understuff a plush, it feels different. Plush toys have for more than a century provided soothing companionship to children. Toy makers have gotten a list from the so-called kid-adult market. Grown-ups who collect children's playthings, including cuddly squishmallows, and velvety jelly cat characters. I love going for something soft, squishable, and comfortable, said Sylvia Stevens, a 28-year-old medical assistant in Yamhill, Oregon. She has more than 100 plush toys, including arcade prizes, which she likes to use as couch pillows. They make me happy, she said. Candace Thompson, a sixth grader in Bowling Green, Kentucky, falls asleep at night surrounded by her squishmallows. 
Some pillows you have to fluff them up, but squishmallows you don't even have to fluff them up, said Cadence, 11 years old. Graham Buddy, an 11-year-old Pokemon and Minecraft fan in San Diego, has a collection of plush toys he keeps on his bed and in his closet. He pretends they are playing video games or watching TV with him. They can also be very soothing, where if you are sad, you can talk to them, he said. Now it's all about plush, said Stephen Passerby, president and CEO of the Toy Association, a United States trade group. Hardball competition has yielded new models that are scented or have oddly curly hair, he said. If you have a whole new edge, you'll want 20 of them. At the New York City toy store F.A.L. Schwartz, racks of store-branded plush toys are first to meet shoppers at the entrance. Fluffy unicorns, velvet seals, rainbow narwhals, dogs with weirdly realistic-looking fur. Plush toys make up more than 30% of F.A.L. Schwartz's business, said Chief Merchandising Officer David Nigley. Customers at a new in-store restaurant can order and personalize Jelly Cat food plushies from a pretend diner counter. The gimmick has helped sell literally tens of thousands of Jelly Cat dolls, he said. Jeremy Padaware, the chief brand officer of Squishmallow maker Jazzwares, estimates the company will sell 30 million Squishmallows during the fourth quarter of 2023 including a new cast of familiar characters, Harry Potter, Pokemon, and Minnie Mouse. Ruhe, the owner of Mildred and Dildred, said she stocked up on Jellycat, Squishables, and Palm Pals and expects them to sell out. She has a waiting list for a fuzzy little legume from Jellycat called the Amusable Peanut. She is also betting on the Tie-Dye Grim Reaper from Squishable. They're like little works of art, she said. And now, in praise of Girls' Night. I love and appreciate my male friends, my husband, couples' dinners, and big parties. But I sometimes find myself craving the bracing, rigorous conversation of a group of women together in a room. As time goes by, these nights, when the men are banished or abandoned, are the ones glittering in memory. On girls' night, there is an openness I don't always feel in other sorts of group settings. As we sit around, some on sofas and chairs, some on the floor, glasses of wine scattered on the coffee table, we talk about the pressing parts of life. A very young-seeming 14-year-old who suddenly transforms into a full-blown teenager over the course of a single week. A woman who married and had kids with a man who once said, unbeknownst to her, that she was okay if you put a bag over her head. A brilliant friend lost to addiction. Feels like reading a few pages of several absorbing novels all at once. There are flashes of insight. Fantastic stories about strangers. Little intriguing snippets. There is nothing like the intensity of a group of women cutting to the heart of things. Sometimes we embark on what I can only describe as elaborate gossip projects that extend over more than one meeting. These are particularly mystifying, juicy quandaries within our extended social circles. Gossip in the highest sense of the word, and probably the lowest mixed in there too. 
I have a feeling that if a man were to wander in for 20 minutes, he might think this part of the conversation was mean or brutal, but he would be missing some layers. Beneath the sharp observations, the cutting analysis, and the jokes are also compassion, a deep desire to sort things through, and a genuine effort to figure out how to live a good life. In all these female settings, we have exhilarating conversations where you almost want to go home and take notes. I like the feeling of ideas buzzing, of not being able to fall asleep because you are going over things in your mind. It reminds me of an earlier phase of life, say college or right afterward, when you stay up talking with friends until the sky is streaked with peak, some ancient excitement unearthed. Why is a woman-only setting so freeing? Though I hesitate to make sweeping, irresponsible generalization about huge swaths of the population, women are usually better than men at analyzing a human situation or maybe I should say generally more inclined towards this type of conversation. With couples, we tend to become our correct adult selves. The conversation often turns to schools, vacations, renovations, televisions, when we want to talk about what is human tragedy or betrayal or love or aspiration or grand-scale delusion or crushing disappointment. Men, through no fault of their own, have a diluting effect. I think unconsciously some of us maybe feel we need to be nicer or more tactful or less brazen or less revealing if there are men in the room. There may be some still invisible pressure to perform a softer or showier or more attractive version of ourselves, or maybe we just water down the conversation out of habit. In a mixed gathering, there will also be the man telling a funny story, the man being clever about politics. The man discussing a work thing. Men, in other words, needing attention of one kind or another, an audience. Not that this can't be fun, but it is a different kind of fun from what I'm talking about. In 1928, Virginia Woolf made a point that I sometimes think about. Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. Without that power, probably the earth would still be swamp and jungle. I think we still do this a little bit. We still have to spend some portion of our evenings reflecting back the figure of a man at twice his natural size. For me, in terms of socializing, girls' nights have become the pure high. I always want to collect my women friends together, my old female friends, whom I have known forever, a comfort, a sustenance, and their newer friends, exciting, intriguing. I've also noticed that even when there are women there who have just met, or women who don't know each other well, we can still dive right into a remarkably honest, open conversation. We can still broach deep or intimate or revealing topics. The usual borders and boundaries are expanded. There is barely any boring conversation. Maybe that women can access an intimacy in larger groups that men tend to preserve for one-on-one. -on -one. The next morning, we text each other. We should do this again soon. We always think that after a women-only night. When will the next one be? As I'm clearing dishes and throwing wine bottles into the recycling, I have the feeling that progress has been made. Even at couples' dinners recently, while the men stand in another room, I notice myself 
communing with women on a couch, seeking out a mini-girls' night in the middle of a dinner party. It's there in these momentary clumps of women where we reproduce bursts of intimacy where the real human connection occurs. I'm not starry-eyed or utopian or sentimental about women. I see the jealousies and jostling and difficulties women sometimes have with each other. I'm talking only about the potential for transcendent conversation that a group of women can have when sitting around a room together. It's somehow 10,000 times easier to share intimacies, to confess outlandish or shocking opinions, to puzzle through complex situations with only women. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.